Bibles tonight, go to Philippians chapter number one. Philippians chapter number one, if you're able to tonight, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter number one. I don't know about the chili being in the Lord's hands. I don't know how much the Lord cares about chili, but uh, we do know who the winner is. So we'll get to that after we're done tonight. Uh, Don't forget, we included in your bulletin this morning, and some may be here tonight that were not here this morning, and these are on the table out there. If you did not get one, this is our missions conference brochure that explains not only the schedule that Brother Chris shared just a minute ago, but also uh, helps us kind of understand a little bit about what uh, a missions conference is all about. If you are like me, uh, 33 years ago, I really didn't know anything about missions, faith promise, missions giving, sometimes called grace giving. All of these are biblical principles. And let me encourage you that if you haven't read this yet on the second uh, page there, which would be page three, page four, take some time to read that and then pray about what God would have you to do. And, And again, there's time leading up to the missions conference But I really believe that there has to be a preparedness. Certainly a farmer cannot expect there to be a crop if he doesn't go out and work the soil and then began to fertilize and then plant the seed. And that's all we're doing with uh, some of this material we're putting into your hands so that God can speak to all of our hearts. And here's here's the end goal of it is that more missions work, that the gospel would go to regions beyond that more people will hear about the love of God that have never heard before. Aren't you glad that somebody brought the gospel to you? Amen. Amen. How many of you had someone who was a personal soul winner that helped you understand your need of a salvation? Yeah, many of us did. Now, I'm glad that somebody brought the gospel to me. I'm eternally grateful. And if you can remember that person, if that person is still alive from time to time, you ought to thank that person. And there's been many times I've thanked the person that led me to Christ because I married her uh, 33 years ago. But I am so thankful that God used my wife to help me to understand my need of salvation. So don't forget about the missions conference. And uh, tonight as we look into this series that we just started about a week or two ago, and the title of the series is Finding Joy in the Journey. Finding Joy in the Journey. And I've kind of given a little subtitle there. It's a choice to rejoice. It's a choice. We, we live our lives based on choices. And I'm looking at a group of people tonight that chose to be in church. That's a good thing. Uh, here's a couple here that was with us this morning, and they're back tonight. Good to have you all. Here's a young couple over here visiting with us tonight. Good to have you folks with us tonight. And many others that are here, and we're so glad you're here tonight. And so I want to look at one verse tonight, and there's a lot in this verse, so we're going to jump into it. But it, look at chapter 1, verse number 1. And I've entitled this lesson tonight, this message, Called to be Saints. Called to be Saints. And look at verse number one. The Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Let's read that verse together, all right? Everybody got that verse there? Let's begin. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to to freely worship in this country. Thank you for the Word of God. 
I pray that you'd use me tonight, bless the Word of God, and then bless our time afterwards. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's Word. Now certainly you look at this verse and uh, you see a lot of things here in this verse. We're just going to take the verse. One of the things I love to do is just take, the Bible talks about line upon line, and that's what we're going to do tonight, and that's what we're going to do on Sunday evenings until we finish this a small book in the New Testament. But again, the Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, notice to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing, when you see that wording there, to all the saints, Paul's writing to believers. Uh, these, these particular people that had put their faith and trust in Christ, the Bible identifies that they're in Philippi, and Paul was writing, as best we could tell from history, he's writing from Rome, and the year is about 60 or 61 AD that Paul is writing this letter that we call a book in our Bible, the book of Philippians. Now, one immediate concern that you find in this book is that there was a man from their church whose name was Epaphroditus. Now, Again, that's not a common name. I've never met anybody in my life named Epaphroditus. But he is mentioned here in chapter 2. Look in your notes there. The Bible says, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. So notice he's a saved man. And he's identified as a companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger. And he that ministered to my wants, Paul said, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had, had heard that he had been sick, for indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And so Paul is writing here, one of the concerns is this man in the church. Now, Again, you'll see time and time again this theme that kind of runs through this book known as Philippians, that there is this theme of joy. It's an important theme, not only in this book, but in other books of the New Testament, we find this matter of joy. As a matter of fact, you see many words in the Bible when you study them out, some words can be used as verbs, and some of the very same words, just a little different form, can be used as nouns. This word joy, used as a verb in the New Testament, is used 96 times. And as a noun, it is used 59 times in the New Testament. 13 of those times is in this small book, the book of Philippians. Look what the Bible says in John chapter 15, verse number 11. And here's how Jesus put it when it comes to this matter of joy. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. And see, you think about this, where does joy come from? The source of our joy is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that my joy would be in you. I've, I've met a lot of Christians who are not a very joyful person, you know, but I think that every Christian ought to have a smile on their face and have the joy of the Lord in their hearts. And that's the way we need to be in life. And this is an important subject because joy can be experienced even through trials. I think all of us in this auditorium, to one degree or another, have gone through some trials. And the one thing that I've seen in many Christian 
Christians' hearts and lives is that even during those times of trials, there is still joy. See, things happen in life, but they can't take your joy because it comes from the Lord. It's an important subject that all of us need to be familiar with. Look at it, it says in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And so we see here the Holy Spirit of God is the one that helps us, enables us, gives us the joy that we need to have. And as the Bible says, even in much affliction. We need to remain joyful people. And I have found that many times when there are unsaved people observing a saved person, or as it says here in the book of Philippians, a saint in Christ, and they see joy in spite of what they're going through, they really don't know what to think about that. How can this person have a smile on their face and have such a positive, joyful outlook and it is because it comes from the Lord Jesus himself. It is something that helps all of us. And so we need to see this. Now, when Paul begins this, this letter, notice again in verse number one, first of all, he mentions the servants. Now, again, it may be Paul writing these words, but understand, this is not man's book. This is God's word. And as he's writing, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And notice that he says here, in verse number one, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Now, a servant simply is someone that belongs to another person. A servant is one who gives himself up to the will of another. Let me say that again. They give themselves up to the will of another. Remember what Jesus said? He said, not my will but thine be done. What a great example. He was God in the flesh. And yet, what did he do? He submitted himself unto his heavenly Father. And every one of us need to see this principle of what a servant is. Because many times we think, uh, you know, it, it is something of a negative connotation. I, when I was in uh, teaching in a Bible college for years, and I was teaching biblical languages, I used to love to have fun with this word servant. It's actually the word doulos. I would get these students that would come in. The vast majority of them would be young guys right out of high school. Occasionally, I'd, there'd be a married student in there, and there'd be maybe a, two or three young ladies that would be in the class. And we would get into the class, and we'd start just like you did back in kindergarten. We'd start with uh, the alphabet. We'd learn the alphabet because it's hard to know words if you don't even know what the letters are. We'd start from square one, and then we would start to give them vocabulary words. Now, a lot of these words were basic, simple words, but again, you ever heard the phrase, it's all Greek to me? That's exactly what it was. Every last one of these words, unless they had had a lot of experience in Bible knowledge prior to going to Bible college, a lot of the words, they didn't really know what they were. When I came to this word, which is translated servant in the English language, it's the word doulos. And I used to, when I would teach them this word, I would always like to have a little fun with these guys. I'd say, now listen, how many of you guys have girlfriends? And there'd be about five or six or more guys that would raise their hands because most of them were sophomores or juniors. And I would say, how many of you have girlfriends? They'd raise their hands. I said, now you want to have a little fun? I said, here's what you need to do. I said, you know how you kind of give pet names to your girlfriend? 
I said, here's a good word to start calling your girlfriend. Say, you're my doulos. Now, there's another word that is translated for this word doulos, not only servant, but slave. So some of these guys, because they didn't take the time to get to know the word and what it meant, they actually took me up on it. They started calling their girlfriends doulas, and their girlfriends were really impressed. Oh, he's got this little, he's got this little pet name for me, you know? And they thought, oh, isn't that sweet? And then one day when someone said that and the girl heard it and she's, her heart's just pitter-pattering, somebody said, do you know what that means? And she says, well, that's his name for me. And they whispered in her ear, it means servant or slave. What? And she, you know, she wanted to hit the guy. But listen, look what it says again. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Do you think it's a negative thing to be a servant of Jesus Christ or a positive thing? Yeah, it's just the opposite, is it not? See, many times we think of a word like that because we know from some of our nation's history uh, what slavery is, and I still think there's many people suffering uh, different forms in this day even we live in. But to be a servant of Jesus Christ, folks, honestly, is one of the highest callings for any child of God. And look, even as a servant, I'm in verse number one, I'm telling you, you study the writings of Paul, and here's what you find is, even though he was a servant of Jesus Christ, that he had great joy in being a servant of Jesus Christ. And we need to see this as we study this passage out in Romans, the book of Romans there, and you know it's in verse 1 of chapter 1. Here's what he says there. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. See, Paul was a servant and he was used by Jesus, and here's why. The Lord used Paul to extend and advance the cause of Christ among mankind. In Paul's day, he was a vessel that God used to take the gospel to the regions beyond where it had never been before. Now, we live in 2017, and certainly the gospel has gone around the world, but do you know there are still people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's why there are so many missionaries that God is calling out, sending out. And listen, it's not all the missionaries' responsibility. All of us are called of God to take the gospel to people that have never heard before. Well, how do we do that? We do that as a servant. So notice the servants that he mentions here. First of all, letter A, we see Paul. And of course, this is the man who was the beloved apostle. God used this man to write 13 of our New Testament uh, epistles, as they're called, books in our New Testament. This man was the most, I believe, was the most ser privileged servant of Jesus Christ. Yet here's the amazing thing. He refers to himself as a bond servant. And yet he was the most privileged. Shows you how God had worked in Paul's heart, how God had humbled the Apostle Paul. He, look, there were times in his life, and we see it in the writings in the Word of God, where Paul even counted his human credentials that they were nothing but loss for Christ. You know, that's what we try to do is we, we have things on our walls and PhDs and doctorates, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, Paul, look at, look at what he writes here in, in the same book in chapter 3, 
here's his credentials. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Paul says it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the Lord. That was his attitude. Somebody said, I've never met a contentious servant. Somebody who wants to serve Christ. Somebody who wants to serve others. And so he starts here with these servants and he mentions, it, again, this is God's doing. He mentions himself. And then notice the word Timotheus or Timothy, letter B. And Timothy was Paul's own son in the faith. The Bible says that in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 2. This young man, God had used Paul instrumentally in this young man's life. But remember, his mother and his grandmother had something to do with his upbringing and his education. And he knew a lot about the Lord Jesus. But God brought Paul into his life to begin to mentor this young man. And he meant so much to the Apostle Paul. Timothy was a trustworthy co-laborer. But here's the best part is is he was like-minded with the Apostle Paul. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that Paul did, everything that Paul thought, Timothy thought, no, everything that Paul did for Christ, Timothy said, hey, look, that's a good thing. I want to be a part of that. Can I tell you, look here, as we serve God together, let's make sure that we are serving the Lord, following the Lord and if we do that, God is going to continue to bless this ministry. Here's one thing about Timothy was he cared for others. But where did he learn that from? He watched Paul. He saw how Paul cared for people. Over my life, I've had people that I have watched and I have seen how they have uh, used hospitality and how they've been kind to someone. They've been compassionate to someone. You know, you can learn a lot by watching someone. And guess what Timothy did? He watched Paul. And he was like-minded. He cared for others the way Paul would have cared for them. And I love Timothy. He, even though he's a young man, Timothy didn't have his own agenda. He realized that everything Paul was about, that Paul's life was on purpose after he got saved. And Timothy thought, listen, that's what I need to give my life to. And that's one of the reasons that Paul was so drawn to this young man. So as he begins this letter to those believers in Philippi, he starts with the servants, but then notice, secondly, he, go, he moves from the servants to the saints. Now, again, saints are those who are the redeemed. And the, these are people that are not revered personally. These are not individuals like some, some uh, faiths or some churches nowadays where they canonize people because of certain things. Listen, the only way that a person can be redeemed is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We can't save ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. You can't buy yourself back. But he's writing here to the saints. Now, listen, as you study the Word of God, you find the people in the Old Testament and people in the New Testament that all are saved the same way, by putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, that not of works, lest any man should boast. And so it's talking about Old Testament and New Testament, those under the Old Covenant and those under the New Covenant, those who are set apart by God from sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, notice the phrase, 
called to be what? Called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Look, they were not called saints because they were righteous. They were called saints because the righteousness of God was imputed unto them. In other words, it was placed on their account. Folks, look, when a person gets saved, when you and I got saved, the righteousness of Jesus Christ was placed on our account so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us for who we are. He sees the righteousness of his own dear son. Look what the Bible says here in, in uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 22 and 23. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone. In other words, it's not only for him that it was imputed unto him, that his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, was placed on our account. So when you, listen, when you hear the word saint, called to be saints, it's a very special, very special distinction that God is making here in the Word of God. Notice a couple of things we can look at. First of all, the believer's description. Now, how does the Bible describe, look at Romans 1, 7, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We who are saints, guess what? God has saved us and God has sanctified us. He has set us apart. There ought to be something distinctly different from God's world, God's, God's children from this old world. And the Bible ta talks about being a peculiar people, that there ought to be something distinctive about us. Look, if we look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, then how in the world would people realize there is something different about a child of God and those that are not saved? And we see here the Bible description of what a believer is. Look in 1 Peter 1 and verse 14. The Bible says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. And by the way, before you got saved, just like I was, I didn't know certain things. Matter of fact, when I got saved for years, uh, God was showing me things from his word. And that's what you call doing things in your ignorance. You had no knowledge of it. But once we read God's word and God shows us something, you can't claim ignorance anymore. If you have knowledge of it from God's word, then it's called rebellion. But the Bible says here that as obedient children, God says, look, you are to no longer fashion yourself according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That phrase means in every area of your life, that you are saved, you've been set apart, God is holy, and God says, therefore, you are to be a holy people. And the Bible says, it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who with, without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning, here in fear. Now, D.L. Moody was a tremendous man of God, preached the word of God for years. And there's a lot of great things that D.L. Moody said, but look at this one. He said, a holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They just shine. Now just think about that for a minute. You ever seen a lighthouse? They don't blow horns. They just shine. They've got a light. What does the Bible say? Let your light so shine before men 
that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So the Bible gives us the believer's description, and and notice here, not only the description, but secondly, the believer's identification. Because remember, look at the verse again, verse number one, he says, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. So here's our identification is, we are in Christ Jesus. That phrase conveys the thought that you and I are identifying with him. When somebody follows the Lord in believer's baptism, we've seen many that have done that. Some even here tonight have, have done that right here at our church. And I love that because it is one of the two ordinances that the Lord Jesus gave to the church. It's something to help us to remember what the Lord's done for us. And so when people stand in that water, as the water comes across their body, they go under the water, they come up out of the water, it's a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know what the baptistry does is the baptistry only gets a person wet. If you get baptized, that doesn't mean you're saved. See, salvation takes place before baptism. You don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. The thief on the cross never had that opportunity, did he? Yet Jesus said, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. But when a person follows the Lord in believer's baptism, what are they doing? They're identifying themselves with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know many people who live in some parts of the world that their families, if they ever found out that they were believers in Christ, they have disowned them, they have excommunicated their own family members from being a part of their family. Now, guess what? A person in those parts of the world can be saved and nobody knows it. You know why? Because salvation takes place in the heart. But when one of them takes the next step of obedience, which is scriptural baptism, that's an outward man, that's something that takes place outwardly to show them what took place on the inside. Many of them know that if they follow the Lord in believer's baptism, that it could mean that their family will no longer have anything to do with them. But yet we see that the Lord wants us to identify with him. In this same book, in chapter 4, and verse 21, the Bible says, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren which are with me, greet ye. A.W. Tozer said, it's a little long, but listen to this. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. He says, so 100 worshipers who meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other, than they would, could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. In other words, Tozer's saying, look, are in Christ Jesus. Do you know who brought us here together tonight? Jesus did. You see, that's the one common bond. I've traveled all across this country, up and down, north and south, east and west, and I'm going to tell you something. I could walk into a church tonight in the northeast and the southwest and all over this country, and even in foreign countries, and if I walked into a Bible-believing church, 
guess what? I'm going to feel like this is my family. You know why? Because the one common bond we have is that we are in Christ Jesus. You see, there is the believer's description, and we see the believer's identification. But then notice, let her see here, the believer's location. You see, each geographic area that Paul went to, and God gave him the opportunity, you know what Paul did? He planted churches. You know what Paul was? He was a missionary that was a church planter. Paul would go somewhere, and he would scratch off a spot, and he would start to take the gospel of Jesus Christ the Word of God, the seed of the Word of God, and he began to scatter and sow that seed everywhere he went. And you know what will happen if you start scattering seed? Things will start to sprout up, right? Things will start to grow. And that's what happens when you take the seed of the Word of God and everywhere you go, you sow it. Now, we never know who's going to get saved. Many times I witness to people and the Word of God is not received. Sometimes, and you've read the the parable about the different types of soil. Sometimes it falls on stony ground. Sometimes it's choked. But you know, just about the time you want to give up, God will give you some fertile ground. God will give you someone that wants to hear. And God led Paul to this place known as Philippi. You see, every place that Paul would plant a church, you know what it became? It became a local, visible assembly of believers just like our church here. Uh, it, you know, Paul's writing to those in the city of Philippi. When people ask me, where do you go church? I don't say, well, anywhere. You know, well, where do you guys meet? Well, anywhere. No, I, I tell them, listen, I, I, I'm a part of Bible Baptist Church. Well, where do you meet? 7 Southwest 129th Avenue, Pembroke Pines, Florida. And, and a lot of times here in the city, here's what I always hear. There's a church there? <laughs> It's amazing. People are like, there, there's a church there? You know, I don't know what we'd do if Walmart wasn't here. That's our claim to fame. You know where Walmart is? We're right behind it. Really? <laughs> you know, praise the Lord for Walmart, I guess. But look at Acts 16 and verse number 12. Here's what the Bible says. From thence to Philippi, which is in the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. What Paul would do is he would go into a city, and he would spend some time, and he would sow the seed. And guess what? People started getting saved. And before long, they started to establish a body of believers, and eventually it became a church. That's exactly what happened 67, going on 68 years ago, when a man by the name of George Zemer went to North Miami. He was there, and he was actually a part of another church group, and God just began to work in his heart. He was a man that believed in seeing people saved and people having a home in heaven someday. And as a result of that, God began to direct him and give him wisdom and began to bless. And the Bible Baptist Church was established. Now, the church has changed names a couple times, but now today it's gone back to its original roots. And I'm glad I'm a part of that. And we are a part of a local, visible assembly of believers. You see, Paul begins this letter and God... God's directing him as he writes about the servants, and then he writes about the saints that are in Christ Jesus. But then notice before we get out of verse number one, he talks about the structure. You see, God is a God of order, and God gives a structure here, and I want you to see this. Go back to verse number one. The Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, now look at the last phrase, with the bishops and deacons. Now, I, I thought about this, you know, a man commented one time, and here's what he said, kind of foolish, but he says, I don't believe in organized religion. To which the preacher said to him, so you believe in disorganized religion? Now, a lot of people, they have a problem when it comes to organization. And listen, I do too. Whenever it comes to man wanting to set something up, a lot of times you know what it's all about. It's about a power struggle. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the chief? Did not the disciples have that discussion with Jesus? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And remember what Jesus said to them. You see, folks, you have to understand when it comes to the, the church of the living God, that it's not about what we want. God has given a structure. And all we have to do is follow the pattern that God's given in his word. And I see this. Now, oftentimes we see people wanting to accommodate their theology based on the lifestyle, their manner of conversation, as it mentions, and they want to do that which is convenient for them. In other words, they, they want to be a part of something that has no gathering place, it has no pastor, it has no services. In other words, they don't want to be a part of what we know as the model of a New Testament church. And yet, again, I wouldn't be a part of any other church. Now, years ago, I was a part of, diff of different religious beliefs and system, and many of you were probably a part of different church along the way. But I'm going to tell you something. The reason that I'm a part of a church like this is because I find it in the pages of the Word of God. I'd much rather do things God's way than do things man's way. I've been a part of things where you see many times the power struggle that takes place. But we've got to see the structure that God gives here. In Philippians 1.1, Paul mentions specifically two offices and sometimes referred to as officers. Notice the first one. He says here with the bishops and deacons. The first office that he mentions is the word bishops. Now there's some misunderstanding sometimes. This word is the word episkopos. Uh, many, many of you know the word episcopalian. And what we find here is this word is a word that is synonymous with the word pastor. It is something that deals primarily with an inspector, an overseer, a guardian, and it was given to the ministries of the gospel because they exercised this care over the churches. Now, I'm not talking about lording over. I'm talking about just like a shepherd was the overseer of the sheep, that God places someone there to be the, the one that watches for uh, those individuals because even Paul, you find that he mentions that after his departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. There's always going to be people like that. Now the truth is, is that I've got enough going on in my life. I don't need other people in my life to watch. God's placed me here. I've got a full-time job with myself. But I will tell you this, that God has put me in this position, and I don't take it lightly. But if there's something that I see, something that I believe could be hurting to you or maybe a member of your family, I'm going to be what God has designated me to be, and that is to be an overseer. I might sit down with you. I might call you. I might come by your house. And listen, you need to understand, I'm doing what I'm doing for two reasons. One, God has instructed me to do that. And secondly, because I love you and I care about you. 
There's a lot of people that don't care. And listen, somebody, Martin Luther said, a preacher must be both soldier and shepherd. Uh, if you have never seen it in 1 Timothy chapter number 3, and I've given you a couple verses in your outline, the Bible gives what we oftentimes call the qualification of a pastor or the word used here, bishop, in Philippians 1.1. Look at a couple verses here. The Bible says this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Now it's been said many times that pastors, bishops, live under a microscope. And for many, many that, that is true. Uh, but I realize there is nothing special about me. There's nothing special about any pastor other than the fact that God has placed him in that position. But what I covet from you is your prayers. Uh, pray for us. Pray for me. Because I'm going to tell you, the devil has a target on the pastor on his back. Because if he can get the man of God to fall, he can get many times the church to go the same way. And we see here that a pastor needs to make many things a priority in his life. You saw it right there. Husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior. Hey, listen, one thing I learned years ago is that my first ministry is not to pastor. My first ministry is to my family. I need to make time for my family. From time to time, you might see me. And by the way, God's called me here to pastor. He hasn't called me to go here, go there, be here. From time to time, I might ask the man, hey, do you mind if I go to this preaching meeting? Because be honest, I need to hear preaching. Preachers need preaching. But there may be times where I might say, listen, I just want to get away for a day. I want to spend some time with my family. And honestly, I need to do that because that is the responsibility that God has given to me. Somebody said the church is Christ's bride, not yours. They can get another pastor. You can't get another wife. According to the Word of God, I need to make sure that I am making my family my first ministry. And along with caring for my family, God's given me the responsibility to oversee the ministry known as Bible Baptist Church. Look, I mentioned a couple of these verses, but look in Acts 20 and verse 28. The Bible says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the, over all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, Shall grievous woes enter in among you, not sparing the flock? Also of your own selves shall men, notice, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Anybody ever heard of a church split? Anybody? A couple of you. Can I tell you this? They're not of God and they're not fun. And when something like that happens, you know what happens? The devil sits over in a corner and laughs. If you're not familiar with something called a church split, most of you are probably familiar with what a divorce will do to a home. Same thing. In a divorce, who suffers? The children. And in a church split, what happens is the entire body of Christ suffers. And you know how that happens? Look at it again. The Bible says, Of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things. Notice, not things of God, perverse things. Trying to draw away some of the flock. Now listen, if he's doing that, God's only called one person to be the overseer. 
If he's trying to draw people away, he, that's not of God. To have two shepherds is a two-headed monster. God's placed one person there. And again, I'm not saying this for my benefit. I'm telling you that we need to understand the word of God here, that God has a certain structure for his church. Here's one lady's observation. Listen to what she said. I don't know who she was, but I like what she wrote down. She said, being disconnected from the local church, for whatever reason, is a dangerous way to live. Not only do these lone rangers, that's her words, not mine, not only do these lone rangers miss out on the blessings of functioning within the context of the body of Christ, but like lone, lone sheep away from the safety of the flock and the watchful care of the shepherd, they are vulnerable to predators of every sort. I think most of us, maybe you've never seen it, but most of us can realize what would happen to a sheep that's in the safety of an entire flock with a shepherd watching over them then to wander away on its own, I think most of us know what would happen to that sheep. That's exactly what she comments about here. Look, pastors are to oversee, to make sure. Now, notice another thing about pastors is they're there to teach the Word of God. This is one of the things that God's given to me. Do you know that this message tonight is not really a preaching message? It's a teaching message. How many of you figured that out about 25, 30 minutes ago? You know, a lot of the messages are teaching and preaching. There's a rule in the Word of God, it's called the Granville Sharp Rule, and it's, it's that most pastors don't realize, a lot of, I hear a lot of guys foolishly say, God's called me to preach. Well, sure he has. But God also instructs me as a pastor to teach the Word of God. Some messages are a little bit more teaching. And the reason that we need to be taught is because maybe we haven't learned, maybe we're ignorant of something, but as we are in the Word of God, it's going to help us to understand. And I'm, I'm going to tell you tonight, everything I've shared with you outside of a few illustrations have been directly from the Word of God. The word the Bible uses is the word didaskalos. You look up the word, here's what it means, teacher. It's one of the responsibilities of a pastor. Look in Titus 1.9, Paul writing there to Titus, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he might may be able to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So what Paul does is God helps him to give this matter of who the servants in the church are. Then he moves to who the ones that are called to be saints, the believers in Christ, those that are in Philippi. Then he begins to give the structure. Now notice, I'm only in verse 1. You say, if we're going to take this kind of approach, we're going to be in the book of Philippians until Jesus comes. We might be. But you know what? There is so much in one verse that we can't miss it. And the first office that he gives is that of a bishop. But then notice the last word in verse 1 is what? Deacons. See, there was two offices, right? So you find here he's talked about bishops. That's a pastor. But then notice, secondly, deacons. In your notes there, I've given you, because along with the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, in that very same chapter, right after he gets done with those that desire an office of the bishop, the pastor, he then moves to the second office, and that is the office of a deacon. Now look what he says here in verse number 8, as he writes to young Timothy, he says, Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, nor greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience, 
And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they, they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, wonderful how you look at that, but isn't it interesting that some of the very qualifications that God puts in the first office of a pastor, those very same things are mentioned in the second office and that of a deacon. Now, certainly two different distinctions because remember, a bishop is an overseer. He is a pastor. He is there to teach. He is there to watch out, to guard the flock of God. But notice the word here that is used for a deacon is the word diakonos. Now, if you're not familiar with this word, here's what it means. It means to minister. It means to serve. It literally means, it brings along the connotation to wait on tables. And that is what God has given here for the second office is someone that is a servant and I'm going to tell you something, God has blessed our church, I don't know, in the years gone by, I believe it was that way, but I am so glad that the men that serve here in this office are men that live up to what the Word of God says. They are men that are servants. Uh, I get tickled with Brother, Brother Gilbert all the time. He's not here, so I'm going to talk about him tonight. Brother Gilbert, he's always, you know, pastor, I, there, I need something to do. You know, and he's, he always tells me, I don't think I should be a deacon. And I said, why not? And he says, because I'm not deacon. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I'm not doing what a deacon does. I said, what do deacons do? And he looked at me. I said, deacons serve. I said, you've done this. You've been doing this. You've done this. I don't know anybody outside of the staff that spends as much time up here at church as Brother Gilbert does. Now, I don't know if you can call tinkering deaconing, but that's what he does. But he's such a blessing. He's up here checking the oil on the bus. He's doing this. He's trimming the hedges. He's doing this. He's going by people's houses. Hey, listen, folks, that's a deacon. That's what God's called him to do. And, and listen, many times, Brother Gilbert and I will sit and talk. And, you know, there are some people who they want to be a deacon, but they want to be a deacon because they want to be an officer in the church. It's kind of like the young man that was hired by the personnel department of a large supermarket chain. And he reported to work at one of their stores, and he greeted the manager, gave him a warm handshake, had a smile on his face, and the manager looked at him, and he handed this young man a broom. And he said, your first job is to go sweep out the store. The young man looked at him, and he says, I'm a college graduate. And the manager looked at him, and he said, I'm sorry. He said, I didn't know that. Here, give me the broom, and I'll show you how to do it. You know, there's, there shouldn't be anything around here that not only deacons, but any member of our church shouldn't say, hey, pastor, I'll do that. And you know, honestly, that is the spirit of our church. We'll go have some fellowship here in just a minute. I don't have to stand around afterwards and say, hey, the floor needs to be swept. The dishes need to be cleaned. Somebody always jumps in. Trash needs to be emptied. Chairs need to be put away. You know why? Because this isn't my church. This is our church. This is the Lord's work. And I'm glad we have people here that are servants. Folks, when you look at this matter of joy, it's a choice to rejoice. 
And you know where it all starts? When we put our faith and trust in Christ. We become a child of God. We receive His righteousness. And you know what we become? We become a saint. I, you know, I, I, I came up in, in, the, in the ranks of the Catholic Church, you know, and I, I heard saint this, saint that growing up. So for me, I don't know about you, it's just really odd for me to think of myself as Saint Dane, because that just ain't so, you know? Saint Richie, think about that. I, listen, I saw a bunch of eyeballs kind of go up there, Brother Richie, you know? But the reality is, is to all that are called to be saints, you know who that is? That's the believers in Christ. The ones that have put their faith in the Lord Jesus and His righteousness has been placed on our account. One of the greatest gifts that God's ever given to His children is that you and I can be a part of a local New Testament church and that we can be called to be saints. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Now remember, as He is holy, therefore we are to be a holy people. Let's bow our heads tonight with our heads bowed. I hope that you want to be a saint of God that is a faithful servant in the church. God's placed us here, and I know there's people visiting, and maybe tonight God's spoken to their heart, maybe in this area of wanting to be a part of a church like this, and we'd love to talk with you about that. There may be somebody here tonight that has never put their faith in Christ. They don't know Him as their Savior, and if that's you tonight, we'd love to help you also to know for sure that you have a home in heaven. We're going to have a good time of fellowship. We'll have some food here in a minute. But before we do that, it's been a tremendous study tonight on the church, the servants, the saints, the structure that God's placed here. I'm glad I'm a part of God's church. I hope you are too. Lord, I pray that you bless the invitation tonight. And Lord, I know that you've spoken to hearts. Lord, I thank you for the word of God. And I pray that you, you just bless this simple altar call tonight, a time of invitation. Lord, I believe that there are many here tonight that you want them to take that step in their life, whether it would be in the area of salvation, maybe calling them to a greater service, Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to understand the structure that you've given to us from the Word of God. Now bless this invitation in Jesus' name we pray. Would you stand?